0: Alright, hello everyone and welcome back to Seed to Harvest. I'm excited to bring my friend Luke Gurgis on to talk about the role of creators, his collective experiences in media, music and investing, and some of our favorite artists. Luke is the founder and CEO of The Bragg Media and founding GP of Lamp Post Capital. With publications that cover two decades of history in music publishing, The Bragg Media launched in 2017 by acquiring titles Tone Deaf, The and the brag and launching two new titles under its brand in 2019 the brag media partnered with rolling stone to launch rolling stone australia and earlier this year launched variety the Bragg Media has quickly become the largest music publisher in Australia, talking to millennial and Gen Z Australians and reaching over eight million Australians a week across its social and websites. Luke, thanks so much for joining us today. So can you share with us what does the acquisition of a media brand look like from the inside?
1: Yeah, interesting question. So the Bragg Media is five years old and we launched Fire Acquisition. And the way that we acquired early on is very different to the way we acquired, mainly because I actually know what I'm doing now and I didn't know what I was doing then.
0: <laughs> it makes a big difference.
1: <laughs> huge difference. So I didn't actually know, like I was, I've was, i been a band manager for 10 years. I worked at a record company. I, I didn't know anything about media when I got into media. So when we launched Fire Acquisition, acquiring the Bragg and Tone Def we pretty much just acquired the two titles that I was kind of reading at the time They were quite big brands in Australia that I thought were underperforming to its potential and that were on the market. Like I literally just called up and we just acquired it because it was there. And I was like, cool, these are the brands we're launching with. We're going to figure this shit out with these brands. And then we like acquired a few things along the way, which, oh, we acquired one other title along the way which didn't work and learn a lot from, and then launched our own brands. And then... I recently read this book called um, "Turn It Up" by the Snowflake CEO Frank. Someone his name slipped my mind now, but he perfectly articulated exactly every mistake I made and where we where we went through. I was like, I should have read this book five years ago, even though it wasn't out. But he was saying like when when you're a founder, when you're a new founder, you make the, a mistake of over investing early before you actually know what you're doing and he's and then he talks about this thing about this this chasm where it's like you're just figuring things out you're overinvesting, you're wasting all this money and most companies die at that point but if you happen to survive or you're smart enough to keep your capital and you get through this chasm and you work out your product market fit you work out exactly how to sell and how to scale your business um then that's when you overinvest and you go hard and you go bang. And so we definitely made a lot of those mistakes. We overinvested in certain stuff, certain products, certain like acquisitions. When we didn't know what we were doing, we wasted a lot of capital. Thank God we survived. We got through the chasm. And now we're not making the second mistake, which people usually make, whether they get too gun shy and they don't, they don't go. We're going very hard now. So we're not making, you know, we're not making two mistakes. We made the first one, but not the second one. So we're going (laughs) very hard now and we make exactly, we know exactly how to sell our products. We know exactly how to grow. We know exactly where the big holes are in media and we're just going really aggressive down that path. So yeah, it's when you, when you're, when you're acquiring with, with clarity and you know exactly how to. Turn one dollar into two dollars. It's a lot more fun than when you're acquiring and you don't know what the <laughs> you're doing.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. So I know no day is the same for you, but to give some listeners some perspective, that what does an average day look like for you?
1: So I get up in the morning and hit traffic with my kids, help them like sort of sort of sort out <laughs> their, their mornings, and then I'll escape the the house as soon as I can, as soon as they're, and then in the car I'm talking with my incredible assistant susie about all the you know we're in australian time zone so we wake up to a lot of emails every morning so we go through all of those in the morning and we go through the day and all of that while i'm driving and maybe do some calls and the calls you know schedule some meeting calls in the morning on my hour drive into the office and then when i'm in the office i segment my day across the company so the Bragg Media is in an incredible place right now because we've just we've got an incredible editor in chief, Poppy Reed, who runs the editorial side of the business like Clockwork. I maybe talk to her once a day for ten minutes max. And then I also we recently promoted a COO and I talked to him for like half an hour a day, maybe. And that's pretty much my involvement in the Brag Media. Those two are just running the business and I'm just there for support and approvals and sense checking things. So that's incredible. And then I'm also in the process of building a a consumer app and SaaS product for the music industry, but that's very much in development now. So again, it's an hour or two working with the development team. And then the rest of my time is in the talent management business and and now Lamp Post Capital. And so that's kind of how I do it.
0: Yeah, and digging into that last piece into your investment style, who would you say are the people, either investors, founders, creators, folks in the music industry, who have had the most profound impact on your investment approach?
1: I think the person that has gotten me the most motivated to invest. I certainly had this appetite before reading this book, which is Angel by Jason Kalanakis. So I read that book. And I think I was like super motivated. All I wanted to do was like learn how to invest in, in you know, in, in company, early stage companies. But I really didn't have the focus or the clarity and that, that, that gave that to me. So I would put a lot of that credit to Jason. I think that book's amazing. And obviously, I consume all easy. He's, he's a content machine. That guy pumps out a new video yeah. every 10 minutes. And so I he's consume a lot of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So So I would say just because I consume so much of his content, it probably, it probably like, whether I like it or not, he's probably had a huge influence on me. And so I'd say Mm -hmm. I'd I'd probably put, put it, put it to him. Yeah.
0: Yeah. He's great. He's been a big inspiration in my, how I'm building my business in terms of building that like media aspect in, in combination with investing. Yeah. And then we also share a deep love for music and the culture that surrounds it. So I was Digging around on some of your media sites, and I found one of our mutual faves from the archives, a brother Ali, and one of his lyrics. You're you know? a brother Ali
1: fan? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Late.
0: Yeah, back in like 20 se- 2016, 2017, I found out about him and I was really into lyrical rap. And he has this really great lyric where he says, master this thesis. You don't only have to drop masterpieces. You can master little pieces. So I'm curious how you've applied this in your life. I think it was a lyric that you took out of one of the songs on an album that you reviewed.
1: Yeah, I really resonated with that lyric because... If you, think, I always say like talent management, very similar to um, venture capital. I see that I see the skills are very similar. So when you when you're managing bands or creators or whatever, you are there to support their career. You're there to provide as much insight as you can and help them. And you're kind of like the passenger in the front seat, telling them, giving them advice on how to get to where they're going. But yeah. you're not as good as a driver as them, and you certainly like aren't the driver. Like they're ultimately going to decide which way they go, and so that management and venture capital is very similar to that. I will say that the way that I do talent management is very different. So I manage like, you know, there's three people in our roster. So it's like, there's a lot of time and care that goes into every person and we can basically be co-CEOs together with everyone that we sign. Whereas venture capital, it's very hard to give that kind of level of service when you're, when you're doing 30 bets per fund or whatever, but, but still at a high level, it's a very similar thing. And, and what you, you, what talent managers are, is it's a very tough job because you need to know a lot about everything. So you need, but, but whenever you're in a meeting, you're often the dumbest person in the room. So you need to know a lot about accounting. But when you're meeting the accountant, the accountant knows more about accounting than you. You need to know a little bit about law so you can manage that process. But when you're meeting with a lawyer, the lawyer knows more about law than you. When you're meeting record companies and... PR people and marketers and wh- whoever you're meeting, they're smarter than you at that thing that you're meeting them about. And so it, that's why often there's you know people quit talent management because they just, they're just they forever feeling imposter syndrome and they don't know what they're doing. But you need to be a master of a lot of little things without being the absolute master of it. And that's what makes an incredible manager because you're basically assembling the troops. You, you're, you're the conductor of the orchestra. Even though you don't know how to play all the instruments, the band can't play without you and I would say that's why that lyric really resonated with me because you know for, for 10 years I've been managing talent and that was that to me summarizes that so perfectly
0: yeah it's interesting I interpreted it a different way in terms of like biting off smaller chunks and then like not saving up all the creative energy for other things but I really love your approach to that lyric so Thank you for sharing that. And, and speaking to your point, being both on tour as a musician and in the boardroom as a record label executive and talent manager, can you share more about how that shift in understanding happened after you started to understand the business behind music?
1: Yeah. So my, my time as an artist was very short-lived. I had, a, I had a song that was like playing on radio on high rotation and I sold out this 800 capacity room and I was on stage to this sold out show singing the song that radio was on that assumably everyone was there for. And I looked at the crowd and not one person in the audience knew the lyrics. No. And I was like, I reckon I'm better at marketing than I am at right? At being an artist. So, (laughs) I quit and I'm just going to focus on managing fans and marketing artists. So, that was kind of my moment for that. I had a real moment of self-awareness. Yeah, I realized I did have a gift for marketing, but Mm -hmm. not a gift for being an artist. (laughs) So... So that was probably the journey where I was like, all right, I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop making music. And then I'm going to really focus on amplifying the artists that I love and all my friends who are artists at the time and just getting the best out of their careers. And then eventually that led to a job at a record label. um, And then it was at that record label, I um, worked out that I just thought that the marketing strategies were so inefficient. And I thought, hey, we should just start our own media business and then use that media business to market all our artists through. They didn't go for it. They thought that was a dumb idea. So I left and started the Bragg Media myself. And that's kind of how that happened.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's wild. I downloaded the excellent Tastemakers Insight on the Bragg Media website, which is a survey survey from over 4,000 music fans, most of... all of whom are part of that audience of Gen Z and Millennial Australians. And I wanted to pull a very interesting quote that I found to share with our listeners. So you found through your survey that over 50% of Australian Gen Z and Millennials say music is their number one passion, demonstrating the power of targeting young Australians via music sites and platforms. And seeing that piece in... In combination with how you built this incredible, what I would classify as like a micro e shop in media businesses, is so unique and something I've only seen like a handful of times. I think the Churnin Group has done something similar, but I what like what other models have you seen out there for kind of that that style
1: of acquiring media businesses? Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. I think like it's all the media industry's gone through this like expansion and contraction a few times where you get all of these like you get all of these new things pop up like vice and wired and all and then they all form these really great entities themselves and then they all get acquired by the big the bigger conglomerates and i think right now we're going through a we're go we're definitely going through a consolidation and a contraction but that I think provides a huge opportunity for us because you know we are like solely independent. It's just two shareholders, myself and my business partner, and the only other people kind of dating, you know, you've you've Mur- your Murdoch's and you know all these like bigger bigger brands like BuzzFeed just acquired you know Complex and I think New York Times just recently acquired a sporting publication. So it gives us a huge advantage because we are like our revenue growth is is is. Like we're coming from a smaller base, which means that we can capitalise on opportunities a lot faster than than all these bigger conglomerates. So we can acquire things, we can double down really fast, and it just gives us a huge competitive advantage while the market is contraction contracting to be able to get great great deals and then be able to jump on these like we opportunity double down opportunities like for example we're coming out of covid now we're going to go crazy hard on events you know the rolling stone awards are a big success for us here in australia we're gonna we've got we're gonna go from doing one event every year like the rolling stone awards to doing 12 every year at that kind of level you know these bigger guys they just don't have the bandwidth to be able to do that and if they do it takes them a lot longer like we can literally turn it on in a month and so that's that's our opportunity and that's kind of Yeah, that's why I feel like we're lucky to be at this time in human history. Even though it's a shit time to be in media, it almost (laughs) makes it the kind of best time to be in media if if you've got the right formula.
0: Yeah, it's very similar to evaluating opportunities in venture where you're looking at different assets where other people maybe haven't seen the value yet, but they will. Mm, It will become obvious very shortly. Yeah. 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 So switching over to the investing side, you're one of the 776 Titans backed by Alexis Ohanian. How did that come about?
1: Yeah. So the we started Lampo, Lampost Capital with Simone Yatch and I, who Simone is someone I manage. She doesn't like me saying this, but hopefully she never does listen to this podcast, but she is the biggest female STEM creator on the planet. Like she wow. is, a, she's enormous, right? And she's incredible what she does. I feel like the luckiest person in the world to be able to get to work with her. And so she, she, Alexis is actually a big fan of Simone. And so he was in Australia for the tennis with his wife and we just caught up for a coffee and it was actually his idea to start the fund. So he was like explaining what he's doing with these Titans. He was like, I'd love for you and Simone to start a fund together and see what you guys can do. I will anchor the fund. You guys can raise money on top of it and go and, and go and start a fund and see what you guys can do together. And he said, look, take some time to think about it. And I was like, no, don't, I don't need to think about it. We're in, let's do it. I'm good. <laughs> was, yeah, yeah, yeah. There was no thinking music. And that's basically how it happened. That's how we started the fund. That's how we ended up with Alexis. Without Alexis, we probably we wouldn't have. I don't know, I might have gone into venture capital eventually. Like I'm very obsessed with it and I'm a fan from afar. But mm. certainly lamppost wouldn't have happened in the time that it happened the way that it happened without Alexis. So yeah, that's that's how it happened.
0: That's awesome. I I love that it's just such a small world. It what would you say is your secret sauce as an investor?
1: It's certainly not experience because we're <laughs> we're ten minutes into this. But I would say our advantage so we we're, we're very lucky in that. We've made some really incredible investments where, you know, we've been given in some cases a 50% off valuation in the current round. We've got onto cap tables where there are a lot more experienced, influential investors than me who haven't been able to get on it. And I think what we can offer is, one, we're a small fund, so I guess it's not a hard sell that we're not going to dilute anyone hardcore. But two, you know, Simona's has one of the most incredible brains i've ever met and people want that on their cap table she's got such a she's just such a genius with a lot of with a lot of things whether it's a creative thing whether it's a development thing whether it's like whatever she's really good at that she's obviously got a big platform and so do i like our media business we reach eight million people a month we have the most iconic global brands in the world and i think when we talk to founders they see that that can be helpful you know beyond beyond just the the small angel checks that we're putting in you know and i and i would say that's that's our biggest kind of usp as a fund for sure
0: yeah it's such an incredible combination of platform that's something i've been thinking a lot about as a creator turn vc is platform is becoming to be a big differentiator in venture so i i think that that's like very interesting. And I think it's a trend that we will continue to see grow as more and more creators professionalize the platforms that they built and look to explore monetization strategies outside of brand deals and and sponsorships and more in the venture and equity-based world. It'd be super interesting. So tell me about the last pitch that blew you away.
1: So if nobody's heard of, this wasn't even a pitch directly to me, to be honest. So this was a I saw this on This Week in Startups. It was David Freeberg talking about his new product, Kana, which is a drink printing machine that sits on everyone's kitchen bench, looks like a coffee machine. And it literally prints any drink you want, beer, wine, like energy drinks, cocktails, like it'll just print it with a cartridge and some water. That freaking blew me away. And we I was like, I got to somehow invest in this, in this company. So I reached out to David, completely cold email. We didn't know each other. Gave him my two cents. Everyone told me, like, good luck. You know, he's not, no, he's not even going to reply to you. But he did. He was, you know, we went out and we, we checked the machines. We, we, uh, we checked the product. We, we met with his team. It is a phenomenal product. Like, it is. I actually think this thing's going to be bigger than the iPhone. So wow. we're super lucky. We're going to be on the cut cap table of this business. I recommend everybody look, go and watch the interview. David Freeberg on This Week in Startups talking about Kana, and you will see a machine that is going to fundamentally change the world more than any other product since the iPhone, I believe.
0: Wow. Um, so that's, that's wild. I remember yes, hearing about it. Like, that's so cool.
1: Yeah, it's insane. It's insane. So I'm yeah, I'm really pumped about it. I think the first, the, they'll start shipping the founding products, like the the first drop of to the founders or whatever early next year. But I've tasted the product. I've seen it. It's it's amazing. It's actually just like, I can't believe I'm alive at a time when this thing exists.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and how do you think about evaluating companies now? For some perspective, I would classify myself as a community taught VC. I just have consumed a ton of content online and sounds like your path has been very similar. So I'm curious how you've shaped uh, your investment process to what you've learned and consumed and chosen to pick out
1: yeah so i guess because i'm a founder myself i have my own survey of one person on what can make a company work how, how you know I, I i know i've done it myself right so yeah i know the absolute pains and strains and so when i'm looking at a, a new deal i'll say right can. Can this founder overcome the problems that I think that I that I've experienced and that I can see happening? If I think the answer is yes, I think the founder can solve these problems. Then I'll go, okay, cool. If they solve these problems, how big can it get? And then if I'm like, holy shit, this if if they solve X, Y, and Z problem, whether it's um, a product problem or a product market fit problem or whatever it is, they solve that problem, and it can be enormous. Like and then I'm like then I'm in, I'll do a bet. Like it's great. That's basically how I think about it. Because like yeah, I just it's fucking hard. Like most companies fail. It's hard. So you're pretty much betting on can the person in front of you solve problems to make this thing work? And if it does work, how big is it gonna be? Mm. That that's that's the way I look at it.
0: I like that very founder first approach and then just like the size of the opportunity. I, I would say like we definitely evaluate Investment opportunities similarly in that fashion. Founder First for us has been a big part of it since, at the early stages, companies can definitely pivot and shift. And like you said, it's a lot of strain. So, as you shifted from media to the early stage investing side, what would you say are the most dramatic shifts that you saw in.
1: What are the shifts in my role personally? Like how I spend my time? Yeah. Yeah. So, I guess like when I was spending time in the media business as a founder, I was this was the first business I ever founded and it was in a brand new industry I knew nothing about. So it was a lot of like working out what the f*** is <laughs> going on and then trying to like fix the mistakes I made. And that was like just learning how to operate a business, learning about this industry I didn't know anything about. That was how I spent all of my time and it was 70 hours a week of just stressing out over that. Now as a, you know, early stage investor, it's great because the media business is, is operating so um efficiently on its own and because of the incredible team that's on there now and i'm so blessed to have that so now as like an investor i'm just thinking about um yeah exactly that like how can i is this founder going to be able to overcome the hurdles how can i help them do that as well and what are the other assets that i have whether it's media whether it's like my experience whether it's whatever what are the levers that i can pull to help de-risk this founder's attempt at what they're about to do and help them like get there faster so that's kind of how I yeah that's that's been my shift it's I guess um I would say it's a lot less turbulent but a lot (laughs) and a lot more fun yeah
0: love that so Luke as as we wrap up what's one thing you think any aspiring musician or creator can do to set themselves up for career success even if they're still in school
1: so the one thing you need to learn know is there has never been a better time in human history to make a full-time living off your art, ever. If you're an artist, like, so back in the day, you were either Bono or you were broke, and there was no in-between. Now, I mean, we have, I've invested in a record label, as you can see behind me, that you can be an artist that no one's ever heard of and be earning hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. You just need to... It's, it's, almost like a, it's almost like a SaaS business or whatever. You've got to find product market fit. So you can make incredible songs that no one wants to listen to. Cool, like you won't make money. But if you can make songs that a small amount of people love, a few thousand people love, you'll make a few hundred thousand dollars a year. And so there is, if you are a very talented artist and you are, most artists find product market fit by instinct and by accident. Like they'll, they'll just create a song that they want and then everybody loves it. But that mm-hmm. does, that's not the case for everyone. You might create the song you love and it just might be the wrong time in history where no one wants to listen to that kind of music. So, and no. But no one has only one taste in music. If you're an artist, you will like a whole range of music. So find the, your personality within your own taste that actually has product market fit. You can do that and you're determined enough and you work hard enough and you don't fucking sleep. <laughs> you'll make a few hundred thousand dollars a year. And that is like a an opportunity that... Has really never existed before, and it's and it's exciting. Like you don't even need to be on a major label anymore to earn to earn that much money. It's it's incredible. Same with YouTube. Uh, the same thing applies. Like if you're a creator, if you're on TikTok, if you're on YouTube, if you're on Instagram, um, you know you get you got you just find the thing about you that also resonates with a small group of people few thousand people. Maybe on YouTube actually needs to be more than a few thousand. It needs to be like a a few million. But when you're talking about the world, that's, that's relatively speaking not that much. And you can make a really good living of what you do. But you have to be patient. You have to be open to feedback, not like what your friends tell you, but actually look at the data. That's the feedback. The data is the feedback. And you have to find your authentic voice within a product market fit channel. Like what do people actually want? And then if you can do that, you can make a living. And that is... Pretty incredible that we live in a time where that's possible.
0: Yeah, so incredible. Well, cool. thank you so much for taking the time, Luke. I really appreciate it. And to close this out. Do you have any additional things that you want to touch on? And then, where can people find you on the internet?
1: You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at, at Luke Gergis, but probably prefer Twitter because it's not Zuck-related. And my email is everywhere on the internet. If you want to just DM me or whatever, I'll give you my email. I'm not, I'm, I can, I don't hide. But yeah. <laughs>
0: All right. Well, thank you so much. Thanks Thanks so much for tuning in today to Seed to Harvest. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe wherever your favorite podcast listening platform is. I'll be releasing new episodes weekly. And if you have any questions or comments, feel free to let me know on Twitter. That's Page Finn, Page, and then Finn with three N's. Thanks and see you again next week.